Let's turn to the uh, final chapter of 2 Samuel, please. 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. And uh, we conclude our journey together tonight by looking at the first, well, all of the 25 verses together. And then beginning next Sunday or next Wednesday, I'm all messed up tonight. <clears throat> next Wednesday... Uh, Pastor Harold is going to come for a few weeks and uh, preach a series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit uh, from Galatians chapter 5, and uh, looking forward to that here on Wednesday evenings. Second <clears throat> Samuel 24 and verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord our king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. In the men of Judah, there were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider, decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. 
Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, get up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, so David went up to Gad's word, or went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, "Why is my lord the king come to his servant?" David said, "To buy the threshing floor from you." in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All of this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. <clears throat> well, we've come to the end of our journey through First and Second Samuel, 65 sermons and two and a half years later. And to be clear, the final chapter brings about, in my opinion, more questions than it does answers. In fact, there are many passages of Scripture that leave us with questions we're not always able to answer. But that's okay. For the Bible is unlike any book in all the world. The Bible ultimately understands us more than we can ultimately understand it. While we read the Bible... The Bible reads us. So we have to understand this relationship, this unique companionship we have with God's Word. Not everything is going to make sense or be explained in ways that we can grasp or even provide us with clear perspectives on the mind and actions of God. Many parts of God's Word are a mystery. And it's not our job to speculate about that which God has chosen not to explain to us. It's our job to trust His Word, to believe His Word, to obey His Word, to interpret all of Scripture in light of God's perfect character, and what is clearly understood, and then allow God's Word to work its purpose in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. And one day, 
As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that which we see dimly will become fully clear when we see Christ face to face. So in this epilogue, in the final chapter of 2 Samuel, interestingly enough, the writer does not end with David's death or his transition of the kingdom to his son Solomon. That is an entire story in and of itself, and you don't get to it until the first two chapters of 1 Kings. Instead, what the narrator, the author, does here is he simply concludes the book by showing us what is a puzzling census that ended in David building an altar. So three things I want you to note with me tonight. The first one is found in verses 1 through 9, and that is simply David numbers the people. David numbers the people. Now those difficult questions that we talked about in this chapter that I've mentioned already as a part of the introduction, they come early in verse number 1. The Bible says here, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, the first question to me is, why? Why was the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel? Well, we don't know why. There's no sequence of time given to this story. In other words, we don't know when this event occurred. Remember, the epilogue is not given to us in terms of chronology. It's given to us in terms of thematic elements of David's rule and reign. So we don't know exactly when this happened. We don't know when it occurred. Most likely it happened during the latter days of David's reign, but we don't know precisely when it happened. So we don't know why God is angry with Israel. All we know is what verse 1 tells us, that God is angry with Israel. We don't know when. We don't know why. But here's what we do know. We do know the perfect righteous character of God. We do know that Psalm 145 and verse 17 says that God is righteous in all his ways. So his wrath, his anger, even when we don't know why he's angry, even when we don't know why he's bringing judgment upon people, we do know that his wrath is always righteous. And we do know that his judgment is never unjustified. So again, when it comes to studying the Bible, you and I have to guard ourselves against unnecessary speculation. Because God is never under any obligation to explain himself to us. So we don't speculate things that the Bible does not make clear. We simply focus on what is clear. It's not original with me, but we've said it many, many, many times around here. This is the focus of our Bible study, that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. We're not going to build theology and philosophy and Bible studies around speculative, debatable matters. We focus on what is clear. And what is clear about what we don't know in verse 1 is that God is always and only righteous in all his ways. So I don't have to have an explanation. 
I don't have to know what Israel has done. What I know is everything God does, God does is right. And he has the right to bring judgment on whomever he pleases. But then it gets a little more challenging. Because before we even halfway through the verse, it says here that God, he, God, incited David against Israel. In other words, whatever Israel has done to make God angry, God is going to use David as an agent to bring judgment to Israel. And the way he's going to use it is through David's sin. So this opens up many questions. Maybe even perhaps questions about the sovereign work of God, such as, Does this mean that God provoked David to sin? Is God the cause of sin? Is God responsible for rebellion? What does it mean that God incited David to do this sinful thing? Well, there is no question that what is happening here, let's call it what it is, mysterious. But what is clear in Scripture, is that God uses both good and evil to carry out His purposes without ever diminishing the human responsibility of those sinful actions. We see it on the good side in the life of Joseph, right? When Joseph stood before his brothers in Genesis chapter 30-something, and he said, look, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So what did God do in His sovereign purposes? He used the evil of Joseph's brothers to bring about great good in the land of Israel and in the life of Joseph. So we see that perspective. I think one of the clearest perspectives of this is in the book of Acts. It's in that that great sermon that Peter preached on the day in which thousands came to put their faith in Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's rearing back. He's probably red in the face, spitting a little bit. Had a lot of info in the intro, as I heard you did Sunday. And he brings it home like this. He says, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, okay, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless, wicked men. So he says here, the crucifixion was according to the sovereign, ordained plan of God. We know that to be true in the Bible. All of the Old Testament prophesies the fact that Isaiah 53 says, it pleased God to put his son to death. The sovereign ordained plan of God was for Jesus to be crucified. But it was also, as we see here, carried out by wicked and sinful men whom Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says were fully responsible for killing Jesus. Did your head hurt yet? So what we understand here is that divine sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility. Neither does human responsibility disregard divine sovereignty. That's what we know. Well, let's bring it back to our text. Because the Lord has a purpose for inciting David. And that purpose will not compromise David being held responsible for the sinful motives of what he did. And in case you really want your head to spin tonight, 
consider First Chronicles 21. In fact, hold your place there. Take that nice new missions prayer bookmark and hold it there in 2 Samuel 24. Turn quickly over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, 1 Chronicles is a, is a parallel. It's a chronicled account of all the events that we read in these historical books in the Old Testament uh, related to the kings of Israel. Now, in relation to this summary of the story that we're reading in 2 Samuel chapter 24, here's what the chronicler says. In 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1. Look at it. Speaking of the same event. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number the people. Did you catch that? So wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought God incited David as said in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Why does 1 Chronicles tell us that it was Satan who incited David? Now, this may appear as a problem, but that's only an appearance, all right? It's a very key word when we look at these nuances of Scripture, what we uh, appear as a problem, appear as a contradiction. It's only an appearance. That's not reality, Okay? This is not really a problem. This is not a contradiction. In fact, I would say that these two passages actually bring more clarity to what was going on behind the scenes. That what the narrator in 1 Samuel left out, the the, the chronicler details for us. It's much like Job's story. Job did not know that Satan was warring with God when God said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job? There's a lot of things I want God to say about me, but that's something I don't want him to say. To Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, Job had no idea that conversation went on, right? The people had no idea that this is the reason for Job's trial. But through the formation of Scripture, we're allowed to look back and see what was going on behind the scenes. That under God's sovereign control, he allowed Satan to be the cause of Job's temptations. And that's exactly what I believe is happening here. Under God's sovereign control, he is allowing Satan's temptations and David's sinful pride to come together for the purpose of punishing Israel for the sin that has angered him. It's all mysterious, isn't it? It's all mysterious, but our God works in mysterious ways. His ways are higher than ours. His mind is deeper than ours. There are just some things about God we will never be able to grasp here on earth. But it is clear that in God's allowance of events taking place behind the scenes, verse 1 tells us that David burst this idea in his heart to go and number the people of Israel and Judah. Now, God didn't command David to do this. When it says here that uh, God incited David saying, I believe this is David saying this. He incited David to grow this motive in his heart. He allowed Satan to tempt him to achieve this. But it was David who's saying, I I think I'll go and number Israel and Judah. So God didn't command David to do this. He allowed these events to take place that caused David to come up with this idea, an idea that we will see David later on take full responsibility for. 
So, so what is it that's going on? Let's, 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 let's hurry through it. David is playing the numbers game. He wants to know how many people are in the kingdom. And again, this is another one of those questions. We don't really know why he wants to do this. We don't really know why he's eager to take this census. It was obviously an issue of motive here and a motive that was not good. Because even Joab, who doesn't seem to have any sensitivity to right and wrong in our study of him, he even sees this as a bad idea. Look at verse number 13. Joab comes to the king and says, why does my lord, the king, delight in this thing? Delight in this thing. Now, let me just say time out right here. This is another example of how God always makes a way of escape. Isn't that what Corinthians tells us? God never tempts us above that which we are able. He always provides a way of escape. God is providing David, a way of escape through Joab. Joab was David's escape. But why do you want to do this thing, David? Why do you delight in doing this? You you shouldn't do this. Now, I know we don't know why he wants to do it, but I think the word delight here may be a hint as to why. And I I don't want to take my own advice here and speculate too much, but I think the word delight does indicate David's motive here, that taking this census on David's part was a sinful motive. It's possible that he wanted to know how big his kingdom had grown. A simple but ugly form of pride. The desire in all of our hearts at times to make ourselves feel bigger and better than others based upon the span of our influence or the size of our kingdoms. Maybe at a peaceful moment, after all God had done for David, Satan tempts him to think about how big he is and how better he is, and he's God's chosen king, and look at all the influence I have and the power I have and the land that I have. It's possible that this was just an ugly form of pride. It's also possible that this census was taken by David to determine the exact number of military men that was available to him, which is one of the reasons in this time and culture that a census would even be taken, to find out how many men of the sword are out there to fight in the nation's battle, which could mean that David was intending to go and take cities and lands under his dominion that God had not given to him. Another sinful motive. That is possible. But whatever the motive was for David to take this census, it was something he delighted in doing for the wrong reason. There's nothing wrong with taking a census. There's nothing wrong with counting the number of people. That's not the issue. The issue was his motive for doing it. And his motive was birthed out of a heart of sin. Sinful reasons for why he wanted to do this. So, Satan tempted David to do it. God allowed it to happen. And David sinned in what he did. And so, the census proceeds. Joab goes throughout all the land for nearly 10 months, uh, numbering the people. 
And all in all, verse 9 suggests to us that the figures of this population was somewhere around 5 to 6 million people. The numbers that you see emphasized here are the actual men who were eligible for military service. And then when you tack on the fact that it, they had wives and children, it's, it's an estimation of 5 million to 6 million people in total. But, of course, the numbers here uh, show us just over a million soldiers. So that, that's the issue here. David numbers the people. Set Number two, David faces a choice. David faces a choice, and this is verses 10 through 17. And when we come to verse 10, it becomes quickly clear that although taking a census was not wrong in and of itself, David's motives in doing so were wrong. His motives were sinful. His actions were sinful. And now we see his conscience being convicted because of what he's done. Verse 10, as soon as it was done, in fact, we have no indication that his conscience was bothered during the 10-month numbering period. But now that it's completed and finished and reported back to him, look at verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So there it is. We don't know why he did what he did, but we do know that through the Spirit's conviction, And the enlightening of his conscience, he realized what he had done was wrong. It was sin. And again, there's a lot in the story we don't know. But the main thing and the clear thing is David's conscience felt the impact of that sin he committed. I want you to think about that for a moment. His conscience felt the impact of the sin that he committed. Terrible thing for the conscience to be asleep. It's a terrible thing not to feel the weight of our sinful choices. And one of the surest signs that our souls and spirit is sensitive to the working of God is the weight that comes about us when we know we've said, done, or acted out in a sinful way. The bigger problem is when we say, act out, and do, and it doesn't strike our hearts. David's conscience, if you're observing here, had become much more sensitive to the Lord through the maturing of time, hasn't it? He knew in that very moment, without anybody having to point it out, what he had done was wrong. And I think that's interesting. Because a lot has changed since his sin against Uriah and with Bathsheba. In fact, you may have noticed in our reading that it was after David, in verse 10, acknowledged and confessed his sin, that God sends a prophet by the name of Gad, G-A-D. Gad shows up in verse 11. Much different, much different than when David murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Because then... God had to send the prophet Nathan who had to confront David in order to stir up his conscience. But now, though he is still a fallen and sinful man, he didn't need a prophet to confront him in order to wake his conscience. He knew he had done wrong. His soul and spirit was sensitive to the work of God. As a result, he confesses his sin to God. And then a prophet shows up with a message. Now, it's from the prophet that we see the choice David now faces. 
God sends Gad. You say that three times in a row, it'll really cause you some problems, all right? God sends Gad. God sends Gad to give David three choices as a means of punishment. And this is kind of unprecedented, isn't it? I don't know, and maybe some of you others can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's another place in all of Scripture where someone is able to choose the means of their punishment. We don't see this as a normative response by God. But that's exactly what he does. He comes to David and says, I'm going to give you a choice of what kind of punishment you and the nation of Israel are going to receive because of what you've done. You can have three years of famine, three months of losing war, or three days of pestilence, disease, an epidemic. So three years, three months, three days. Uh, Three years of no food, three months of losing war, three days of disease. That implied here is going to take life. Now, again, we have to go back to the context of the chapter, right? This is not just a punishment for David's sin. But we are to see this as a punishment for all of Israel for the undisclosed actions that caused the anger of the Lord to even be kindled against them in the first place. Remember, David is using Satan, or God is using Satan's temptations and David's pride as a means to punish the people for what was already something they had done to kindle his judgment and anger. So this is not just about David. It's about the nation, which is why we see this consequence being brought against the whole people. Again, we talk about all these questions. We have more questions than we have answered. Another question we have is, why did David have a choice here? Why did God give David a decision to make? We don't really know why, but here's how David responds. Verse 14, he says, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. I don't know how you see that tonight. I prefer to see David's words here as an expression of faith in God. He was too distressed wisely so, to make a clear choice. So what he did know was best for he and the people was that if they simply fell into the hands of God, that would be the safest place they could be. Why? Because his mercy is great. You see, of all that David did not know, one thing he did know is he knew God's mercy was great. That the best place to be was in the hands of God even after we've sinned against him. It's it's that, that whole analogy of our sin as believers. You know, do we respond to God the Father when we sin as if, oh no, I hope dad doesn't find out. Or do we respond in the manner of, oh, I need to go tell my dad. My dad can make this right, even though I have failed miserably. This is what David is doing. Oh, no, I hope God doesn't find out. No, that was a long time ago with Bathsheba. Now he's much more mature. He's much more in tune. He understands. He's seen the mercy of God on a firsthand experience. And even though he sinned, he's not running from God. He's running to God. God, Dad, merciful God can help me. Look, this is good theology for dark times. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord. I don't know what I should do, and I don't want to choose it, God. Let me just be put in your hands. You do what you feel you need to do, because I know no matter what, your mercy 
is great. So immediately when we come to verse 15, it appears that God does make the decision. David doesn't make it. At least he rules out number two, which was not to fall into the hands of men. He's like, I don't know one or three. God, I just want to be in your hands. There you're merciful. And God makes the decision. He sends three days of pestilence, disease, an epidemic uh, broke out. It was a terrible, infectious disease that took over the land for three days. The narrator tells us here that 70,000 men died. And then at the appointed time, which is a very key phrase, it's a whole sermon in and of itself about the sovereign providence of God. At the appointed time, God relented and said to the angel who was carrying out this disease, stop, it's enough. And I find it very interesting. We look at this number 70,000, we say, wow, it, it doesn't seem that God was very merciful. But notice what the angel is fixing to do. He is fixing to take out the whole city of Jerusalem. And as he's fixing to take out the whole city of Jerusalem with this disease, with this epidemic, God says, it's enough. Stop. Stop. No more. And because of his mercy, the disease cleared up. At the appointed time. It's a great reminder, isn't it, that God is a God of righteous judgment, but he is also a God who is full of mercy. That there is a time in your life when God will say, enough. And those times are appointed times. Days marked only on God's calendar. Where one day when we see him face to face, we'll be able to look back at those days, as Warren Wiersbe said so many times, and say, oh, I now know what you are doing. They're appointed days. No matter what pain, no matter what struggle, no matter how much you feel like the thumb of difficulty is pushing down in your life, there is a time, an appointed time, by which God will say, enough. And it's by the Lord's gracious and sovereign design that he appoints an end to our pain and shows us the greatness of his mercy. That's what he's doing here. And of course, David is certainly moved by all that Israel is experiencing. How can you not be? You're the king, the leader of these people, and you're watching 70,000 people die that he thinks he's solely responsible for. Remember, David has no idea that all this started because God was angry at something Israel had done. He thinks this is all on him. And that's why we see in verse 17, look at it, we're going to close this up. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel of the Lord who was striking the people. And he said, behold, I have sinned, God, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, the people, what, what have they done? What have they done? I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who did it. Please let your hand be against me. In other words, David is saying, even though he didn't know, he didn't know, what God was really doing here, David was saying, please, let me take their punishment. Let me take their punishment. Don't put this on the sheep. It's a very interesting choice of words, isn't it? Don't put this on the sheep. Let, let, me, take, let me take their punishment. You see, as their king, David was willing to bear the punishment of their sin in their place. But just like with Absalom, he couldn't. 
No one can. Except one king. And so, write down number three. David builds an altar. David builds an altar. This is verse 18 through 25. So in verse 18, the prophet Gad tells David to go up to the threshing floor of Er Anah. And build an altar to the Lord. So David comes to Arana and requests to buy his threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor was just a place where animals would walk around in the centralized location. They would crush the wheat chaff in order to separate the grains in harvest season. That's what a threshing floor was. And at first, Arana offers to give everything to David at no cost. You want the threshing floor? Great. You can have everything, the threshing floor, the oxen that the, you're, you're going to need for the burnt offering, the wood, all the tools needed that, to build this altar to the Lord. You, you can have it all. But we have this famous, famous saying by David in verse 24 that we often use in our lives when he looks at Arana and he says in verse 24, no, 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 I want to buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. What a tremendous statement. He wanted his offering to God to be a sacrifice. I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. And let me just say here, when it comes to our lives, we're called to the same sacrifice. We're called to the same sacrifice. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is spiritual worship, Paul says. Worship is sacrifice. Living for God is sacrifice. Giving to God is sacrifice. Growing in God is sacrifice. Raising Children who make God, His church, and His gospel a priority, sacrifices. It may mean they can't do the travel thing. It may mean that they can't get into this place that you would like for them to get into. It's about sacrifice. David said, why would I try to give God anything that I haven't sacrificed? So convicting, isn't it? Well... David buys the threshing floor. And in verse 25, the book ends. Look at it. David built there an altar to the Lord, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted. Now, I want to say, because I think that last phrasing can be a little bit confusing, the sacrifice did not cause the plague to stop. We've already read in verse 15 that God had already stopped it. And he stopped it on account of his mercy at the appointed time when he looked at the angel and said, enough. God's mercy stopped the wrath, not David's prayer. Now, I'll just leave that for you to chew on for a little bit. I think the reason why the narrator gives it to us in verse 25, again, this is not in reason of chronology. This is theme. He is simply concluding the whole scene by showing us that the disease had officially come to an end. When all of this had concluded. But the focus 
The focus is that the last act of David recorded in the entire two books of Samuel is on him offering up sacrifices. Two are mentioned, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Burnt offerings, as a reminder, was that which was given for the atonement of sin. I have sinned. I'm seeking forgiveness for God, from God. Peace offerings was giving as a celebration. And as a result of God's forgiveness, we've made peace with God. And David offers both. But we cannot close this book without seeing the historic significance of what David is doing, where he is doing it. This took place on the threshing floor of Er Anna. You say, what's the big deal? Well, geographically speaking, a thousand years before this event in 2 Samuel chapter 24, there was a man by the name of Abraham who willingly took his son Isaac to that same spot in Jerusalem and was willing to sacrifice his son in obedience to God until God said, enough. Stop. Here's a lamb. It would be just a little bit later from 2 Samuel chapter 24 in this spot, the threshing floor, the place where Abraham willingly offered Isaac, where Solomon, David's son, would build the temple. The place where for years God's people would come and go, offering sacrifices, praying, confessing their sins to God, reconciling their relationship with the God of heaven. Oh, and a thousand years after that temple, in that same land, just a few blocks away from Solomon's temple, is where the one perfect king will actually lay down his life for the sheep that David could not do. You see, even as we come to the end of the book, we are again being pointed not to David, but to the Son of God. David was willing in verse 17 to take the sins of his people, but he couldn't. As we have seen on so many occasions in our studies that what David could not do, Jesus did in that same place, the threshing floor. For us, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Why did he do it? Because his mercy is great. His mercy is great. And thank God for those moments in our lives. And the Holy Spirit of God has said, enough. Enough. It's time now for you to experience the mercy of God. You see, from these studies, 65 sermons later, I remind you of our theme that we began. This is a tale of three kings. King number one, Saul. That's who the people chose. King number two, David. Well, that's the man after God's own heart, but still a fallen, imperfect human being. King number three, Jesus. It's his kingdom that we seek. 
It's his kingship that we yield ourselves to, the only king who can truly save his people, the only king who will rule and reign in perfect justice and righteousness forevermore. And so how do we end Second Samuel? Well, in the same manner in which Jesus said we ought to pray every day. Your kingdom come. We have no answers in this kingdom. We live for yours. And we pray for yours to come. Because your mercy is great. Let's stand together for prayer tonight.